It was like an inch at the top. Gertie is 93 years old. There's a mask that I have for Halloween that's the Cyclops. It's time for the apple seed. In every episode of the show, we listen to great storytellers tell great stories. And we hope that the stories we bring you spark memories and thoughts that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling can entertain, inspire, and strengthen you and your family. I'm your host, Sam Payne. And today on the show, we have two great stories. The first is from Massachusetts-based storyteller Motoko, who brings us a Halloween story with both tricks and treats and haiku. Stealth is my game. In midnight black, I travel for my secret mission. That was Motoko reciting her son's aspirational haiku about, well, about being a ninja, which led to her making him a ninja costume for Halloween, which led to all kinds of adventure. Also, this hour, we're going to bring you an old-time radio rendition of the adventure of the Speckled Band, a Sherlock Holmes mystery starring British actor Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes. Well, Watson... Violence does in truth recoil upon the violent, and the schemer falls into the pit which he digs for another. That was Basil Rathbone, maybe the most prolific Sherlock Holmes actor on screen and in old-time radio dramas like this one. Mr. Rathbone was a noted Shakespearean actor, and it's a delight to hear how he brings grandeur and menace to Britain's most famous detective. So let's spring into action with Three Ninjas from Motoko, recorded live in the Appleseed studio with our terrific studio audience. Let's go, shall we? I grew up in Osaka, Japan, and came to Massachusetts in mid-80s as an exchange student to the University of Massachusetts. And once I got there, I liked it a lot. I decided to live there and raise a family. And now I have a son. I have one son, and his name is Charlie. My son is all grown up now, and I am actually a proud grandmother of a three-year-old, and my granddaughter's name is Ruby. <laughs> so I became a storyteller first when my son, Charlie, was in kindergarten. I used to go into his classroom and tell his friends stories from Japan. They used to love me. I did that every year, year after year after year, until my son turned a seventh grader when he told me not to show up at his school anymore. <laughs> In fact, he told me he will never speak to me again if I came. <laughs> so that's when I started visiting other schools and tell other, other people's children stories. So my son wrote this haiku. Stealth is my game. In midnight black, I travel for my secret mission. Mom, I want to be a ninja. Hiya! My son said when he was in kindergarten, old enough to go on his first trick-or-treating. I was glad and relieved. Glad because I wanted him to uh, be proud of his cultural heritage. I mean, Halloween is not really a Japanese tradition, but I thought it was appropriate for him to want to be a ninja. And relieved because of the dismal lack of my sewing ability. I'm the famous bad wife who, when my ex-husband asked me to um, hem his work pants, I used the staplers. <laughs> I know that was just terrible. But you see, ninja costume is the easiest thing to make. So I got his father's old black T-shirt and cut it straight down the middle so he could pull the edges together like a robe. And I gave him a black scarf to tie around his waist. Another smaller black T-shirt to cover his head using the neck opening for his eyes and tie the sleeves in the back. A pair of black pants and black socks. We um, spray-painted his old sneakers black. And the cute little ninja was born. <laughs> Hiya! 
You must follow the way of shinobi, courage, honor, and wisdom. I was giving him my own made-up ninja code. <laughs> Always remain invisible. Never boast of your achievements. Awesome. Hiya! <laughs> so that's what he was every Halloween. Over the years, he added his own touch, a cardboard samurai swords, uh, origami ninja stars, and a white hachimaki headbands with a bright red sun in the middle of his forehead, like the national flag of Japan. So when my son was in fourth grade, he went trick-or-treating with two of his soccer friends, a big shy boy named Carlos and Megan, an athletic redhead with a face full of freckles. I drove my little ninja to Megan's house. Carlos was just arriving too, wearing a Frankenstein mask and a red tie. I rang the doorbell and Megan came to the door. She was wearing this beautiful princess dress, all pink satin and white lace, but on her head was a black witch hat and her face was painted green. I forgot to tell my mom I wanted to be a witch this year, Megan explained. So she made me this dress and now I have to wear it. You, you should have told me sooner, Megan's mother Karen sounded, sounded exasperated. Um, you always wanted to be a princess before. It's all right, I said. There's nothing wrong with being a princess witch. Karen, this dress is amazing. I wish I could sew like that. Well, Megan's house sat on a little cul-de-sac with a dozen or so lovely small homes all around. So the kids' plan was to go around the cul-de-sac trick-or-treating and come back to Megan's house for a candy party. I know most of my neighbors and it's safe, Karen assured me. You and I can stay here, Motoko. Oh, well, I think I'd like to go with them, you know, keep an eye on them, I said, being the helicopter parent I am, <laughs> ready to hover. <laughs> oh, mom, my son rolled his eyes. Don't worry, Charlie, I'll hide in the bushes. Nobody will see me. <laughs> mom, I'm the ninja, not you. <laughs> So stealthily, I followed the three uh, uh, kids going round from house to house uh, and always hiding you know, a little bit in, in the shadows and watched them uh, fill their bags with candies. Sometimes the people asked, what are you? And Megan would say, I'm a princess witch. And my son would say, I'm a ninja. Hiya. Carlos said nothing, mostly because he was shy, but also because it was obvious. I thought it was funny that nobody asked him why a Frankenstein was wearing a red tie. <laughs> but I, we had almost gone around the entire cul-de-sac. There were only a couple of houses left. One was all dark and it looked as if nobody was home. So we went to this other one, a small single-story ranch with slate-blue shingles. The porch light was on, so I hid behind a little cypress tree near the front door as Carlos went up the steps and rang the doorbell. After a while, the door opened, and we saw an old man uh, with gray hair, wearing brown sweater and gray pants. He, was, uh, he looked much older than my father, probably in his mid-70s, and slightly bent over. Trick or treat, the kids shouted. The old man reached over with his left hand and dropped a few candies into Carlos's bag. It was then I noticed, and so did the kids, that the old man's right arm was missing. The sleeve of his brown sweater hung empty by his side. I, I, I'm a princess witch, Megan's voice was soft and squeaky. The old man reached over again and gave Megan a few candies. Then he turned his gaze to my son. And what are you? His deep, gravelly voice contained no joy. A stinking kamikaze? I flinched, but my son was unfazed. He said, no, sir, I'm a ninja. Hiya! The old man glared at my son for a few moments. 
Captain hissed, Get out of here. He slammed the door with his left hand. What was that about? Carlos was mystified as we made our way back to Megan's house. Why didn't the old man give Charlie anything? I don't know, Megan said. I have only seen the old man once before. His name is Mr. Tar... Tarnoski or something. Mom, what's a kamikaze? My son asked. It's kamikaze. It means spirit wind. But the old man was talking about the Japanese military pilots who did suicide attacks during World War II. What's a suicide attack? Well, toward the end of the war, Japan was losing and they were desperate. So they made young pilots fly into American warships with a missile tied to the plane and with no fuel for returning. That's crazy, Carlos said. That's stupid, my son said. Crazy? Yes. Stupid? Yes. Sometimes in a war, you are forced to obey very stupid orders. Megan's house was aglow with orange lights from the plastic pumpkin lanterns. While we were gone, Karen had decorated her entire living room with black and orange balloons, rubber bats and spiders, and plastic skeletons, frosted cookies shaped like ghosts, and of course, more candies. Carlos's father was there too, wearing a Jason mask and a red tie. How was trick-or-treating? Karen asked. The one-armed man was mean to Charlie. Megan squinched up her green face. And he said some kind of a bad word. What? What happened? It's all right, Megan. I can explain, I said. You can go and play. So as we watched the kids play and gorge on candies, I explained to Karen what had happened. I'm so sorry that happened, Karen said. Joe Tarnowski is a veteran. He lost his arm during his service in World War II. I figured as much, I said. His wife passed away a while back. I met his daughter once and she told me. But she doesn't come around much, so Joe's all by himself. But I'm guessing he's doing all right. Carlos's father was teaching the kids how to carve their own pumpkins. Ah, this was so much fun, Megan sighed. Mom, I want to be a ninja next year. A girl can't be a ninja, Carlos said. Yes, she can, my son said. Right, Mom? Yes, there were lots of girl ninjas as well as boy ninjas in Japan hundreds of years ago. You mean ninjas were real? Megan was amazed. I thought they were fake, you know, like witches. Both witches and ninjas were real people with certain useful skills, I explained. If you really want to be a ninja next year, I will teach you how to make origami ninja stars. In that case, Carlos declared, I'll be a Jason ninja. <laughs> so the following year, the three ninjas, well, including one with the Jason mask and the red tie, <laughs> went around the same cul-de-sac trick-or-treating, except this time I was not allowed to come. My son absolutely forbade me from following them. So what I'm about to tell you is my son's account of what happened, verified by Megan, Carlos, Megan's mother, Karen, and the police. <laughs> They had decided ahead of time to skip Mr. Tarnowski's house altogether. I mean, their uh, bags were more or less full of candies by the time they got near his house anyway. So they were walking by quickly on the sidewalk. It was then they smelled it, an acrid smell of burning metal. They looked and saw black smoke pouring out of a side window. Megan gasped and, and started to run, followed by Charlie and Carlos. The big bay window facing the street was curtained and dark. Megan rang the doorbell, but no one answered. What should we do? What should we do? Carlos's voice was rising in panic. Quick, Megan, go home and let your mother know. Ask her to call 911, my son said. But, 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 
Megan hesitated. You run faster than me or Carlos. Now hurry. Megan sprinted. Carlos kept banging on the front door. My son went around to the side window, which was halfway open. Through the smoke, he could see blackened kettle on a red-hot electric stove. Beyond the kitchen in the dark, he saw a flickering blue light. He ran back to the front. Carlos said, maybe no one's home. He is home. The TV is on. Come on, we got to keep banging. Mr. Darnowski! Mr. Darnowski! Still no answer. We got to break this window. Charlie looked around and found a, a big flat stone. He picked it up with both hands and lifted it above his head. And just then, the door opened and the old man stumbled out, coughing violently, choking with smoke. He collapsed on the ground, gasping for air. Mr. Tarnowski, are you all right? The old man's glazed eyes opened and saw two ninjas, one with a Jason mask and a red tie, and the other one with a white hachimaki headband with the bright red sun in the middle of his forehead. As he lifted his only arm to reach for the boys, they could hear the sirens of ambulance and the fire truck approaching. Mr. Tarnowski was hospitalized for a few days, but he was all right. He had fallen asleep in front of a TV and forgot that he had put the kettle on. But the house, the damage to the house was minimum too. About a week after the accident, a police officer called me, Karen, and Carlos's father, saying, Joe Tarnowski and his daughter would like to know the names of the children who saved him. Do I have your permission? Uh, let me ask the kids, sir, and I will get back to you. Now, I was hoping that the kids would say yes, so Mr. Tarnowski could thank them in person. But Charlie, Megan, and Carlos decided no. But why not? I asked my son. Are you guys feeling too shy? No. Well, maybe Carlos is, but that's not why. <laughs> then why don't you want Mr. Tarnowski to know who you are? I'm the ninja, remember? My son laughed. The way of shinobi, courage, honor, and wisdom? Always remain invisible. Never boast of your achievements, right? It's so much cooler to be remembered just as the three ninjas. Hiya! <laughs> Three Ninjas, a story shared with us by Motoko, a native of Osaka, Japan, a story about Halloween adventures in America. This is a story that talks about some hard things, about an injured man who takes out his grief and anger on a little boy and how that boy responds. And what guides that boy, Motoko's son, Charlie, is his desire to be a ninja and to follow the ninja code given to him by his mother, the way of shinobi, courage, honor, and wisdom. And that's just a little bit different from Charlie's haiku, if you remember, which was, stealth is my game in midnight black. I travel for my secret Charlie figures out not only how to be stealthy, but also courageous, honorable, and wise. And that, for me, is what's important about this story, how we develop codes of honor to live by, and how those codes help us make important decisions to do the right thing even when it's difficult or even when we think we have lots of reasons not to do the right thing. Charlotte Bronte wrote in her novel Jane Eyre, Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. If at my convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? 
That's a nice way to talk about that thing we're talking about, right? When we say we're going to live a certain way, it's important to keep true to that as best we can. Some of you may be Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or may have been. You may go to church. Perhaps you're in an honor society at school. Maybe your parents have given you a moral code. All of those places, all of those environments are places in which codes like that get developed. Codes like Motoko gave Charlie. And when you turn that code over in your mind, whatever code it is that you live by, what parts of it inspire you? What makes you want to live up to the ideals of your code? In my life, I think of something from the Bible, a verse from the New Testament that's become kind of a code for me. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. That verse reminds me a little bit of how Charlie behaved in this story. And it helps me to remember how to treat those around me, how to think of them as people who need my care and attention, not as enemies or strangers, but as brothers and sisters. Sometimes it's easy and obvious how to care for someone, but sometimes it's harder, less obvious. And that Bible verse helps me make better decisions, helps me be a better person, even when it's hard. Well, in just a moment, a little talk back with our producers, Heather and Brian, about three ninjas. And then we're going to hear a Sherlock Holmes mystery thriller that's coming up here on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. It was a pleasure for us just a moment ago to listen to Motoko, recorded live in the Appleseed studio, telling a story called Three Ninjas. And to talk about that story, I'm pleased to be joined around the desk by our producers, Dr. Heather Bigley, Dr. Brian Tanner. Guys, it's a pleasure to have you with me. Great to be here. Hello. <laughs> Three ninjas. Three ninjas. <laughs> and I, one of the things I love about that story is that sh- is that Motoko makes up, makes up, just fabricates a ninja code for yeah. her child yeah. to live by, right? <laughs> I think it's great, yeah. I also, you know, one of the things that I was really touched by in that story is how the— f- the family and friends take seriously this experience that the boy Charlie has. And uh, nobody says, oh, well, I'm sure he didn't mean it that way, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. They just say, oh, that was wrong and he shouldn't have treated you that way. Yeah. And I think that's really, that was important for Charlie, which I think is one of the things that allows Charlie later, because he's feeling supported by a community, to say, no, I can help this person Right, and I can live that code that I wanted to live. Yeah. Um, it's harder when people go, "Well, you shouldn't have taken it like that," or maybe he was joking, or maybe you know, there's a lot of things we do when we're uncomfortable to dismiss yeah. how someone might feel in a situation, and they didn't do that, and I, that made me glad for Charlie. <laughs> My wife is fond of saying, "There's no excuse for bad behavior." Yes, and, <laughs> but at the same time, right. uh, she is a person who. Uh, works very hard to to understand where a person might be coming from. Right. You know? Yeah, no, I think that's a fine balance, yeah, right? Like it is. uh you you're not allowed to treat me that way though I understand why you're treating me that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. You, Brian. You know, th- that kind of leads me into what I was thinking about with this story. Um so when my wife and I were expecting our first child, um we decided like we should kind of articulate what our family values are. You know, we should put it down somewhere. Like, if, as we're bringing children into the world, you know, like, it would be good if we kind of had, like, a values framework for our family. Um, and so we went and, and crafted some sentences about, like, what what does it mean to be a tanner, you know? Um, <laughs> and we tried, to, we tried to span things like, we're adventurous and we're open to trying new things. We enjoy having fun. That's one of them. Mm. Um... 
Other things are like, we're resilient, we learn from our setbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- but there there's one in there that I was thinking about, of with that line of uh, discussion that you guys were having. We seek to understand others rather than judge them, and we seek to be a friend first, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and this is something that I, w- I won't lie and say this is in my mind like all the time yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. or even most of the time, you know, but it's it's something where— You don't have family meetings in which you go back and <laughs> review the sentences. We're not like, you know, <laughs> you know, son, recite tenant number four of the Tanner value statement, you know. <laughs> um, but— uh, it, it is something where, like, something we can say to our kids when they when they get frustrated with something or when they, they lose something and it just breaks their heart and yeah. they feel like they can't go on. We say, like, hey, remember we've talked about we try to be resilient. Mm-hmm. What does resilient mean? Do you, are you resilient? Do you think you can— do you think you can handle this, yeah. you know? And a lot of times it helps them kind of screw up their courage. And Yeah, you know, a moment ago we joked about maybe about about not, you know, uh, having family meetings in which <laughs> the tenets of the Tanner Code are recited. Yeah. But at the same time, that that articulation of what they are yeah. probably gives you a foundation upon which to build, right? And something to go back to when you, as you just described. Yeah, and, and when I pulled this out again and printed it, I was just like, this is— this is good to revisit. And yeah. and I it wasn't just like, oh, we gotta make this list. It was <laughs> like I I really do think that these are things that we believed. Yeah. And and we have discussed them with our kids. And as they get older, you know, we may even add things or or append things yeah. <laughs> based on their input. And because I think a family culture is something that's always evolving. Yeah. You know. Ratified amendments to, yes. the, <laughs> to, to the Tanner Code. <laughs> do I have a quorum? That's right. <laughs> Heather, how about you? Um, yeah, I just, you know, I was thinking as I listened to that story about actually a story from Simran Jeet Singh, who uh, grew up sick in uh, Texas. And after 9-11, you know, he was a little boy who was wearing a turban around Texas. Yeah. And he talks about going to this um, little roller skating party with his class. And when he walked in, the owner of the roller skating rink told him he wasn't allowed to be there. And he wasn't going to be allowed to skate. Mm. And all the teachers and all the other students said, okay, we will come with you. We will not skate here Mm. either. And that kind of support, I mean, it just get. I'm going to cry. It just (laughs) gets me that the community would gather around and say, it's not okay to treat one of us this way. And, um, you know, this gave him the confidence to, um, you know, stick up for himself in lots of situations, but also the generosity to say, okay, that's how that person's going to treat me. But that doesn't mean everyone feels that way about me. So I just thought of, I just thought of Charlie and I thought of <laughs> Simranjit Singh at the same time and was like, I'm glad for people. Yeah. You know, the, in one of our sister podcasts, uh, there is a conversation with Simran Jeet Singh. In fact, in a couple of our sister podcasts, yes. the Appleseed, of course, is part of the family of podcast podcasts produced by BYU Radio. And uh, 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 there's a podcast called In Good Faith that you work on, yep. Heather. And there's another podcast called Top of Mind. And those are both fantastic podcasts that contain, uh, both of which contain conversations with Simranjit Singh. And that's a, that. his is a fascinating story. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with Brian and Heather about some of the thoughts that arise for all of us when we listen to a story like Three Ninjas from Motoko. That story brought to mind a memory for me, and I'd like to share it as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Maybe your junior high school was like mine. Maybe junior high is where you first learned to gossip, the place you first learned to be two-faced. I mean, that's certainly the way it was for me. Now, to be clear, I wasn't guilty of any egregious gossip-mongering or any expert two-facedness. 
It's just that the pull of one's peers is strong, and unless one is careful, it's easy for one to give in every once in a while to sharing a bit of, oh, tantalizing information that might raise one's conversational stock in the company of one's Spanish class study table or in the company of a hostile clarinet section to fail to rush to the defense of a friend about whom people might be trash-talking and who is not there in person. Is it the admission of a serious sin to confess that I was less than stalwart sometimes in standing up to those pressures, that I failed on occasion to stand firm in my defense of the persecuted and absent with words and feelings entirely free of snark? Well, I hope not. I really did try to be a good guy and a good friend, but you slip now and then, or I did. And I remember the day it happened. In fact, I remember exactly where it happened. It was in the long, curved hallway that ran around the outside of the junior high school auditorium, ending in the double doors that opened on the sidewalk out to the math and foreign languages satellite building. I was walking down that hall, headed out to my math class, with a friend, a good friend. And we were having a good time. talking and laughing together as we did on just about every walk out to the math and foreign language satellite. And suddenly, I remembered that not half an hour before, in my science class, I had heard someone say something snarky about that friend of mine, called him a name or something. And I, well, I had slipped. Not only had I not defended my friend in the face of the snarky comment, but I had laughed along a bit. And not only had I laughed along a bit, but I might have, just might have joined in the name-calling myself. It's weird when you're in junior high. Somehow you think that you can be one way with one group of folks in one situation and that you have to be another way with another group of folks in another situation. And you don't imagine that there will be consequences in either of those groups or situations for the way you act in either of the other groups or situations. But I was wrong when I thought that. Of course I was wrong. For me, the toughest thing was always that those me's, the guy in science class who joined in the snark about my friend and the guy currently walking beside that friend out to the math and foreign languages satellite, well, both of those me's talked to each other. They talked to each other in my head. They talked to each other in my heart. And I felt, well, I felt ridiculous. In any case... My friend and I walked down that hall, me feeling ridiculous, and I made a little promise to myself. No big deal, just a little lifelong code of conduct. It happened just as I put my hand on the handle of the double doors headed to the outside sidewalk. Never again, I said to myself, am I ever going to say anything bad about anybody my whole life, not while they're with me and not while I'm away from them. Never again. I made that little promise, established that unbreakable code, and I put my hand on the door handle, and I opened the door, and the outside sun streamed in on the brand new me. Hallelujah. I felt so good. A new leaf. A clean slate. And I don't know how you imagine it went, but if you got a few years under your belt, a few miles of experience, you probably know that, well... I haven't yet been able to keep that up for the whole rest of my life. I'll admit that. I have to admit that. Anything else would simply not be true. But I'll also say that I did it for a while. For, I don't know, six or eight weeks, I never said a single negative thing about anyone at any time, whether they were there or not. And you know what? That was a pretty good six or eight weeks. And though I haven't been able to keep it up for the whole rest of my life, I've been able to keep it up to the degree that I'm generally pretty positive about folks. Though I haven't yet been able to keep it up for the whole rest of my life, I've defended people against unwarranted snark plenty of times, most of the time. Though I haven't been able to keep it up for the whole rest of my life, I've refrained from participating in unchecked gossip plenty of times, most of the time. And I'm a pretty true friend, and I'm happy about that. In other words... Though I don't have a perfect record of holding to my junior high code, I have a fairly good record. And that simple junior high promise, that little goal, laid the foundation, if not for what I am all the time, then at least for a way I still try to be. And you know what? I'm way more that way than if I had never set myself to promising that I'd try to be that way. 
as I pushed on the handle of the double doors and headed out into the sunlight on the way to the math and foreign language satellite with a guy who was, well and truly, my friend. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You never know what's going to spark a memory, and you never know what memory it's going to spark. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show bring memories and thoughts to mind for you that you can share as stories with the people you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. A pleasure to chat about that multiple story, Three Ninjas, uh, with Brian and Heather. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Now, earlier in the hour, we heard a story from Motoko about making hard decisions, about three ninjas, about Motoko's son, Charlie. And now we're going to turn to kind of a fast-paced, fun version of the great story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, The Adventure of the Speckled Band, a Sherlock Holmes mystery. Sherlock Holmes here is played by Basil Rathbone, who was in 14 Hollywood films as Sherlock Holmes. It's his most famous role, and he might be the most famous guy to ever play it. We hope you enjoy The Speckled Band. And now for something we're kind of excited about on the Appleseed. Imagine it's 1945, and after dinner, the family has gathered around the big radio in the living room. It's a big night for all of you because you're about to hear the latest episode in a radio series that brings to vivid life the adventures of the most famous detective in the world. As the family gets comfy, Dad crosses the living room to click on the radio, and when he does, the adventure begins. Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And so would begin an exciting evening around the radio. And on this episode of The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, it's The Adventure of the Speckled Band. Now here's the setup. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are about to receive a visit from Helen Stoner, the stepdaughter of the cruel Dr. Grimsby Roylott. It seems that Dr. Roylott and his two stepdaughters have inherited something of a fortune, a fortune that as long as they're all alive must be split between the three of them. But not too long ago, Helen's sister was found dead inside her locked bedroom at Stoke Moran, the family home. Helen suspects their cruel stepfather has murdered her sister for a bigger share of the fortune and fears that she'll be next. Can Holmes and Watson expose the killer and keep Helen alive? Well, Helen comes to 221B Baker Street to get their help. She's shown into the study by Mrs. Hudson, the faithful housekeeper. Come in, my dear. Thank you. Uh, Miss Stoner, I'm, I'm so glad to see you again. How do you do, Dr. Watson? And this must be your friend. Yes, Miss Stoner, I'm Sherlock Holmes. Sit down by the fire, won't you? Yes, yes, please do, my dear. Hello, you're, you're trembling with cold. It's not cold that makes me shiver. Uh, Dr. Watson has already given me several hints as to your present problem, as well as having refreshed my memory as to the circumstances of your sister's death. My problem is a simple enough one, Mr. Holmes. I'm... I'm waiting to be murdered. No, 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 my uh, dear Please girl, be a trifle more explicit, Miss Turner. Very well, Mr. Holmes. My fiancé is leaving for the Far East today. When he leaves, I shall be alone with my stepfather at Stoke Moran. He plans to murder me just as he murdered my sister. What makes you say that, Miss Turner? Many strange things have happened recently. For instance, he's just moved me into the bedroom in which my sister died. Well, what reason did he give for changing your room? That my old one needed repainting. It didn't need it. Dr. Roylett did need to move me into that horrible room. And other things have happened. I... I've heard the music again. Music? What music? My sister first heard it a few days before she died. I heard it myself on that dreadful night she breathed her last. Oh, Mr. Holmes, I'm terrified. Don't worry, my dear. Please don't worry anymore. <laughs> you have friends to help you now. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? No. Of course not. Now, this music. 
Does it seem to come from inside the house or outside? Well, it... It's hard to say. It, there's one other thing that puzzles me, Mr. Holmes. Oh, what's that? My sister's dying words. As she lay in my arms, she gasped out two words. Oh, what were they? Banned and speckled. Sometimes I thought it was merely the wild talk of delirium, and sometimes that it referred to a band of people. Oh, yes. Mr. Turner, how long is it since you heard this strange music that you've told us about? I heard it last night. Last your fiancé leaves today, you say? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Well, Miss Turner, I shall do everything I can to help you. If we were to come to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible to see over your rooms without the knowledge of your stepfather? I, I think so. He told me this morning that he intended to take a late train home tonight. Ah, that's splendid. Watson, out with the timetable, old fellow, and look up the trains to Stoke Moran. Right, your Holmes. You're listening to The Appleseed and the 1945 radio drama The Adventure of the Speckled Band, based on a story written almost 130 years ago by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In this story, just after Helen Stoner leaves Holmes and Watson, her cruel stepfather, Dr. Grimsby Roylott, pushes his way into the apartments at 221B Baker Street. He has followed Helen there and threatens Holmes and Watson not to get involved. In fact, he bends the fireplace poker into a pretzel and shakes it at Holmes to emphasize his point. But Holmes and Watson coolly see Dr. Roylott out, and once he has left, they meet Helen at Stoke Moran to investigate. Here's more of the adventure of the speckled band on the Appleseed. Oh, Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, I'm so relieved that you've come. But don't you think my stepfather might have followed you down here? You have to take that chance, Miss Stoner. A few hours' delay might mean the difference between your life and death. It was imperative that we examine this bedroom of yours before Dr. Roylott returns. Anyway, my dear, you mustn't worry anymore. We're here in your house, and we're going to take good care of you, no matter what harm befalls you. Thank you, Dr. Watson. So this is the room in which your sister died, is it? Hmm, it's much as I pictured it. Uh, and Dr. Roylott's room adjoins this one, you say, Miss Stoner? Yes, Doctor, on that side... The room which adjoins it on the other side is my regular bedroom. The one that's being so conveniently painted, eh? Yes. Well, let's examine this room. No trap doors or sliding panels, I suppose. It sounds solid enough, Holmes. Yes, I think it is. Hello, what's this? Are you aware that this bed is clamped to the floor, Miss Stoner? Why, no, no, Mr. Holmes, I didn't know that. What an extraordinary thing. Was the bed in your other room anchored also? I know, I don't think it was. Very illuminating. And this bell pull hanging against the wall above your bed. Oh, that, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, but if you want to ring. There's another one on the other wall over there. Now, why this one? Well, I, I don't know. My stepfather made a number of changes after we came here. Yes, quite a burst of activity, apparently. And it took some strange shapes. Why are you standing on the bed, Holmes? I'm curious, my dear fellow. Aha. Uh -huh. It may interest you to know that this bell rope is fastened to a brass hook. There's no wire attachment. It's a dummy. A dummy? But why? There's a small screen above it. It's a ventilator, I suppose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Yes. A ventilator leading into your stepfather's room. Curious. I notice there's no means of opening the ventilator on this side. It can only be operated from your stepfather's room next door. I wonder if you'd mind taking us in there. Of course, Mr. Holmes. Follow me. What do you make of it, Holmes? There's devil's work afoot, old chap. Here we are, Mr. Holmes. Mm, it's much the same as the other room. A bit bigger, perhaps. That large safe against the wall seems to be an unusual piece of bedroom furniture. What is it, Miss Dona? Uh, my stepfather's business papers. Oh, yes. You've seen inside it, then? Only once, some years ago. I remember that it was full of documents. What's this saucer of milk doing on top of it? Does Dr. Roylott keep a cat? No, but he does have a cheetah and a baboon as pets. He brought them with him from India. Well, Holmes, a cheetah is just a big cat. Uh, true, but I doubt if a saucer of milk would go very far in satisfying the appetite of a cheetah. Well, I think I've seen enough. This matter is too serious for hesitation. Your life may depend upon your following and my instructions, Miss Homer. I'll do anything you say, Mr. Holmes, anything. Hmm. Is that village inn I see through the uh, trees from this window? Yes, the Queen's Arms. Uh, your bedroom windows would be visible from there. 
Yes, Mr. Holmes? Very well, then. Watson and I will go there now and obtain accommodations. When your stepfather returns, you must confine yourself to your room on the pretense of a headache. You follow me? Perfectly. When Dr. Roylott returns for the night, you must open your bedroom window and put your lamp on the sill as a signal to us at the inn. Then withdraw quietly to your usual bedroom, the one that's being painted. I'm sure that you could manage that for one night. Of course. But what will you do? When we get your signal, Dr. Watson and I will come here and spend the night in your dead sister's room. We are going to solve this mystery of the dummy bell rope and the unusual ventilator and the strange music in the night. You're listening to The Adventure of the Speckled Band from The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Families would gather around the radio in 1945 when this radio drama was made and listen to a Sherlock Holmes adventure together just about every week. And in this one, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, just as they said they would, head to the Queen's Arms Inn to watch for Helen's signal. They wait for a long time. And then, deep in the night, it comes. A lantern in the window. Holmes and Watson creep secretly from the inn to the house and into the mysterious bedroom to watch for... For what? Well, here's the conclusion of the adventure of the speckled band on the Appleseed. of death. Have your lantern ready, Watson. Now, Watson, now! Great heavens, it's a snake slithering down the bell rope. Ah. You can't kill it without stick Holmes out of the way. Let me get a shot at it. I'm trying to drive it back the way it came. Get out. Ah. There it goes. Back through the ventilator. Oh. What a fiendish plan. Scott, what's that? I think the devil has turned on its master. Come on, Watson, into Dr. Roylott's room. Dr. Roylott! Dr. Roylott! Dr. Dr. Look at him sprawled on the bed. Look at his eyes. Yes. And see what is coiled around his forehead. It's the snake. Yes, the band. The speckled band. He's dead, Holmes. Yes. He's been bitten by the deadliest snake in the world. The Indian swamp adder. Its deadly fangs produce death within ten seconds. Well, Watson... Violence does, in truth, recoil upon the violent. And the schema falls into the pit, which he digs for another. What should we do now, Holmes? We must remove the macabre headgear from the dead doctor and return the snake to its den. Ah, and I suggest that we tell Miss Stoner that there's no more danger under this roof. After that, we can turn the matter over to the local police. Our work is done. Holmes, Dr. Watson, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you brought me back My here to Baker Street. Turner, it would have been inhuman to leave you in that house of horror and death. We have a spare bedroom, and Mrs. Hudson is a motherly and understanding woman, and I can assure you that Dr. Watson and I will be delighted to have you stay with us here until you've decided on your future plans. Yes, of course we will, my dear. As a matter of fact, it would be rather refreshing to have a, a touch of youth about the place. You're both so <laughs> kind. Mr. Holmes, I think it's wonderful how you foiled my stepfather's devilish plans. Yes, wasn't it a remarkable example of logical deduction? No, it wasn't, old fellow. When we examined the fatal room, I drew the obvious conclusions. Mm, the dummy bell rope, the <clears throat> ventilator, and the immovable bed. Yes, old fellow, it instantly gave rise to the suspicion that the rope was there as a bridge for something coming through the ventilator and traveling to the bed. I once thought of a snake. When I saw the saucer of milk on top of the safe, my suspicions crystallized into certainties. Oh, it was a fiendish plot. Yes, an extremely clever one, too. Exactly. My stepfather must have trained the snake to return to him when he played the music. Yes, he put it through the ventilator with the certainty that it would crawl down the rope and land on the bed. It might or might not bite the occupant. Perhaps she might escape every night for a week, but sooner or later she must fall a victim. Thank heaven I came to you, Mr. Holmes. Amen to that, you Mr. Know, Holmes. Holmes, if you hadn't lashed at the snake with your stick... I bet it wouldn't have turned back on its master. True, old chap. In that way, I am no doubt indirectly responsible for Dr. Grimsby Rylett's death. 
<laughs> but I, I can't say it's a fact that's likely to weigh too heavily on my conscience. The Adventure of the Speckled Band, part of the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. This episode was first broadcast in 1945, just a few months after the end of World War II. And as a little historical tidbit, I'll play you the way this episode ended, the way a lot of these episodes ended, with Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson speaking directly to the audience. Before I go, I want to say that every one of our friends bought war bonds to help our boys win the war. Now let's all buy victory bonds to help bring our boys back home again. Yes, and let's buy victory bonds to make sure that the men who were wounded will get the finest possible care. Those same victory bonds will help make the GI Bill of Rights a success too. And they'll help provide for the families of those men who gave everything, including their lives. The men of our armed forces finished their job. Now let's finish ours. Buy victory bonds. A Sherlock Holmes adventure starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as the world's greatest detective and the world's greatest detective's sidekick. In 1945, when the show you just heard first hit the airwaves, families listened to stories like this on the radio after dinner. And not just families at home, members of the armed forces serving all across the world listened too on Armed Forces Radio. Thanks for joining us for a little piece of radio storytelling history on The Appleseed. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, played by Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, saving the defenseless from the greedy ne'er-do-wells. And how about that for a code to remind yourself of once in a while? Violence recoils upon the violent, and the schemer falls into the pit which he digs for another. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on the Appleseed, where great stories change your world. We're pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU Radio family of programs. And you can find this episode of The Appleseed or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or, of course, by Googling The Appleseed Podcast. We really appreciate your reviews. If you listen on a podcast platform, leave us a five-star review and some feedback. We would love that. And, of course, it helps people find the podcast. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Appleseed.